You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Master, who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life. And understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God. And to you we give glory together with your eternal Father and your all holy, gracious, and life-giving Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome back to all of our participants here for... The fifth Sunday in Ordin. It's hardly ordinary time now, is it? Please. We're we're very firmly in the pre-Lent period. Yeah. I mean. Used to be called Septuagesima. And Now you're saying to yourselves, what's Septuagesima? (laughs) Well, this is the problem. Because we have lost our language. Because our culture's been stolen from us. Yeah? And it's up to you to reclaim it as a member of the Institute of Catholic Culture, which is why we are now uh, sending out, even as I speak, our preparations for Lent at the Institute of Catholic Culture. We're going to take the guidance of Dom Prosper Garanger this this year. Last year, we looked at Father Alexander Schmemann. This Mm -hmm. year, Dom Prosper Garanger. And uh, I can't think of a better he's, guide, really. He's got a, a whole volume on Septuagesima season, in fact. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's why we are going to make use of his insights and um, beautiful insights and be sending out each week some Lenten resources, Lenten reflections for everyone and getting ready here, sending your preparation, preparation emails out. But this Sunday... Uh, is one of those Sundays, not quite ordinary as much as preparatory. You like that? Yeah. Boom. All right. Because we're looking at Job and some other texts. So give us our biblical text here, Annie. You bet. All right. So our first reading this weekend is from the book of Job, as Father just said, chapter seven, verses one through four and verses six and seven. The responsorial psalm is taken from Psalm 147. The gospel is Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39, and the epistle is St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 9, verses 16 through 19, and verses 22 through 23. There you have it. So we're in Job. Here we are, Job chapter Job 9. Chapter I've got, I've got seven. trusty Job old. Seven. Next week, I promise you guys, I'm going to be out of this fake office. Because uh, I don't like <laughs> fake offices, but oh, you brought Fuentes with you. Kind of, okay, isn't that weird? How oh, wow, that? Fuentes is really psychedelic today. <laughs> it is psychedelic, yeah. <laughs> oh, Fuentes, because you know, 
little little bone up on Job is good. good. Job, here we in are, chapter, chapter seven. seven. And uh, open your Bibles there. You should have enough time by now. Job chapter seven. Where is Job in the Bible? We don't often go. There. <laughs> it depends on where people stick him. You know, he's one of those one of those floaters that gets stuck depending on where your particular edition of the Bible sticks your wisdom literature. But usually Job is stuck in the wisdom literature, which is fine. Um, the problem I have with it being in the wisdom literature is you get stuff like, well, we don't really know who Job was. And this yeah. was some Palestinian Jew reflecting upon their own difficulties and they're probably making up this story. And that, my brothers and sisters, turns my stomach. Now, unfortunately, Fuentes gets into this kind of an idea a little bit, but God bless Fuentes. He's a product of his time. He does a lot of good work. I don't want to come down on him. But we do know who Job was. And I'm about to tell you who he was. So if you are at Mass this Sunday and your priest says, well, Job was a made-up character, pray for your priest, uh, you know, because... uh, that's not, that's not, he may not have all the information that I'm going to give you right now. And I'm pretty wait. excited about it. Cool. Rogue, well, okay. Read, Rogue, we Job. Yes, Job. Chapter seven, verses one. You're, one. You're, now, now in, in the, in the assigned reading, it's verses one through four and six through seven, skipping verse five. So we're going to take it very seriously. Verse five here. Okay. And we're going <laughs> to actually read it. So let's go. Right. From the, I'm reading from the RSV. Annie's got an RSV. We're going to read verses one through seven. Go ahead, Annie. All right, here we go. Has not man a hard service upon earth, and are not his days like the days of a hireling, like a slave who longs for the shadow, and like a hireling who looks for his wages? So I am allotted months of emptiness, and nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lie down, I say, When shall I arise? But the night is long, and I am full of tossing till the dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. It's a real uplifting passage. Yeah, welcome to our pre-Lenten uh, uh, readings. <laughs> this is this is Lent. No. Yeah. No, but um, okay. Well, take a who who's Job, Father? Good. Well, we can go to chapter one, verse one, and read um, the beginning here. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. And he had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses, and very many servants. So the guy's loaded. Job's rich. He's got 10 kids. And then verse 4, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So his kids are party animals, all right? Mm -hmm. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. 
For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their heart. Thus Job did continually. Okay, so this is who Job is. But something more that we know about him. And that is, uh, if we flip over to the last chapter of the book. So Job's a pious man, yeah? yeah. He prays. He fasts for his kids. He is a faithful man. He's a believer, in other words, and he's and he's rich. He's a rich believer, okay? We find out also that he has friends, actually, if you keep your hand in chapter 40, whatever. We're going to just flip back real quick um, to... Um, Verse chapter 2, verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, so he's Job's got 10 kids and three friends and a wife. A wife. The For wife. what that's worth to Job. <laughs> the book of Job, the wife is not uh presented in all that you know great of light. But here we are in chapter 42, and we find out about him. Toward the end of his life, the names of his of his sons and and so forth, and then okay, okay, verse sixteen is where I'm going for, chapter forty two, verse sixteen. And after this, Job lived. So this is after all of his sufferings, right? All after the book of Job, like the, all that's gone on, he lived a hundred and forty years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. So the guy dies a very old man after all that he's gone through. But this is the part that you're not going to get anywhere else. At least not any of you. <laughs> and that is that the uh, genealogy of Job is known to us who this guy was. So I'm going to go back to Fuentes now and read you what Fuentes says. The book of Job is included among the wisdom writings precisely because it teaches man that pain and suffering are a mystery of divine wisdom according to the sacred writers. Okay, so for Job, a foreigner, not descended from Abraham, is the central character of this book that bears his name, a wise and wealthy man, a native of Edomian city of Uz, located between Edom and North Arabia, a region Famed for its wise men, okay? He believes in the true God, whom he adores. And okay. And then it's what this is what Fundit says. We do not know for certain who wrote the book of Job, which is true. We I mean, I don't know that Job wrote this book, right? It's written about him. The ancient, the most the oldest tradition is that Moses actually wrote the book of Job. But of course, modern scholars will will debate this point. For, for a number of reasons, primarily because this book speaks of a man who is, he finds himself suffering apparently unjustly, and he's grappling with this, this situation he finds himself in, and says, basically, where is God in all of this? Now, he doesn't lose his faith by any means, but he's still struggling with justice, with the wisdom of God, and so forth. Let me talk a little bit more about that in a minute. And so this book, because of that theme and because of certain stylistic uh, uh, parts of its writing, ends up being dated to around the Babylonian exile because this is very similar to the literature that's written during that time in which, in which God's people are saying, we find ourselves in a foreign land. What did we do wrong? 
What what did I do? I I'm a, I, my my parents were over there and yeah, I had a slave and all like that. But near what did I do wrong? Right? And this question really resonates at that time. So because of its style and, and so forth, and because it seems they'll end up dating it to that point, which is fine. Just remember that because a book has certain phrases and certain styles to it, doesn't mean it was originally written at that time. It just may have been edited. What we've received may have been edited at that point to enrich the language to more better, more better <laughs> reflect. Okay, there's a good example, right? More better, right? We would only say this in 2024 <laughs> yeah. with a bad education, like Father Hezekiah's house. And uh, <laughs> so, so it may have been edited at that point, and and we the, what we receive is is heavily influenced from that time. We don't have to deny the authorship of Moses, number one, and number two. This point that I'm going to share with you right now, and that is that in the Syriac translation of the Old Testament, it's known as the Peshitta. The gene there's a verse that's added to this last verse of the book of Job that's not in the Septuagint. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And you say, yeah, but what does that matter? Well, because the Syriac edition of the Bible actually is extremely valuable because it comes from that Middle Eastern culture in which things are handed on and not always written down. Yeah. And here, the genealogy of Job has actually been handed on and finally is written down and comes to us. However, it comes into the Syriac edition, comes to us, and it and it reads like this. So it, it finishes up with this last verse, right? Mm-hmm. And Job died an old man full of, of, of his days. And Job died an old man full of days. And adds this. The same, that is Job, dwelt in Haran on the... Haran? Hmm. I remember that name from the book of Genesis. Okay. So let's stop for a second and go back to Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. Now these are the descendants of Terah. Terah was the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran was the father of Lot. Haran died before his father, Terah, in the land of his birth. And in his birth in Ur uh, of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. In the name of Abram, da, 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 da. verse 31, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, and his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, now now we have Haran as a location. Huh. Well, why? Because they probably started naming it in, in memory of their whatever father, uncle, guy, right? Yeah. Who was a brother, brother of Abraham? Of Abraham. Now, why is this important? Because listen to this text goes on in the Peshitta. The same dwelt in Haran on the borders of Edom and Arabia, and he called and he was called Yobab, 
And he took unto himself a wife, an Arabian woman, and she bore him a son called Hinnon. And Job's father, now put on your biblical seatbelt and crash helmet, and Job's father was Zerah, the son of Esau. What? Making him the fifth in the descent from Abraham, and it was also written that he will rise with those whom our Lord shall raise. Now, now this is, is super. Esau's grandson? This is super cool. Yes, Annie. Wow. Still, I'm going to put you to the test now. In your in your in your biblical knowledge, and actually, I'm asking you to apply your biblical knowledge. You know who Esau was. Yeah. yeah, Esau, the 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 brother of Jacob. Jacob, right? Who does what foolishly? Gives up his birthright. Tells his birthright. Why? Because he was hungry for some. Because he was he was hungry, and if he was hungry, who should he have turned to to be fed? This God, Lord, yeah. Am I right? I mean, in, in times in which we think we're going to starve to death, at the end of the day, you got to turn to the Lord and say, Lord, feed me. Yeah? Yeah. Because the Lord's going to take care of us. And yet, Esau did not trust in the Lord. He trusted in food. Yes? Which is a very helpful theme for us heading into Lent as we are. Yeah? Um, and, uh, and and he lost he lost it all, right? He lost he lost his his inheritance. Now let me ask you a question. Esau the old man with his grandson Job on his knee. When he turns to his grandson and says, "Son, remember this. If I've taught you anything, boy, don't lose your hope in the Lord. Wow. He will never abandon you. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in the Lord. Because I know from experience what I did and what I shouldn't have done. And after all these years, I can tell you the better way. Isn't that what the grandfather does? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This is why I love this text, because it all of a sudden allows us to understand who Job was. Job wasn't just a rich dude. He wasn't just a pious guy. He was a guy who had learned some lessons about life from his grandfather. And he, in this book, lives out that exact situation and finds himself, much like his grandfather, in a very, very difficult situation. But instead of turning to men who are telling him falsities, his friends, Job struggles to remain faithful to God, struggles to put into practice what his grandfather had told him. And hmm. that, my friends, is the book of Job. That's the person of Job. Okay, Annie, there you have it. Yeah. Wow. I'm... I'm Only at the ICC, you're going to get it. You that's know. incredible. Yeah. Um, so what do we make of a passage like this where, I mean, I I don't know. I, 
I'm not in the mind of of those that that chose the lectionary readings. But, <laughs> I mean, this this seems so depressing yeah, it and, is. and you don't really get the sense of of the hopeful job in, right no in you you passage. you don't but but if you know the book of job and that's what i hope i hope the icc can grant you today uh, first of all i'm going to suggest that you go and you listen to an icc talk and i had pulled it up on my computer so i could give you the title of it exactly but if you go the icc website and you type in job on the explore button, you're going to come up with it because it's called Suffering with God, Job and the Attacks of the Evil One. Dr. Timothy O'Donnell, it's an old talk that we did a long time ago, but it's excellent. Dr. O'Donnell's insights in the book of Job are excellent. And so I would highly recommend that you take the time to go and listen to that talk and, and actually read through the book of Job at least at least in outline form, which is what I want to do for you right now in order to understand where we're dropping in on this passage, because you're right, Annie. Out of context, this thing looks terrible. I mean, he's like, yeah. what's life like? All, a man what the, in despair. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But actually, it's not a man in despair. It's actually a man who's struggling to, to, to get it. He's struggling to understand. And in that way, he gives voice to the human sentiment of suffering. And ultimately, the book is like this. And, and actually, actually, Fuentes gives us a nice little layout. He says, the poem is divided into three parts. A prologue, that's chapters one and two, in which that's kind of is a prologue. Yeah, it's the prologue. It's, 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 the, it's the thing that sets up the whole book, right? And, it, um, and basically, chapters one and two, Job is told who he is. It's, it says who Job is there in, in chapter one as we read it all the way down to verse 6 where satan enters the scene and 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 um and now god says look at my servant job is there anyone like job on the earth i mean this guy is this guy's awesome right and 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 the devil says well if you let me i'll show you how not awesome this guy is he just needs to be afflicted a little bit and, and in this, we can drop into the bigger story of a man in this fallen state in which we find ourselves. And then Job is applicable to every man. Yeah. And we, in chapter 1, verse 22, or verse 20, verse 20, then Job arose. This is after his sons and his kids, his kids are, are dead. Okay. His sons all die. His daughters die. Then Job arose and rent his robe and shaved his head and fell upon the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came into my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I said, how many times I hear my dad saying that line? Yeah. Verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Okay. Then, then Satan comes down and, and engages with the Lord again. And the Lord says, Good. See, test him. And Job is afflicted in his body. Yeah, he comes in with uh, you know all of these sores and so forth like that. And then we get that line again at the end of verse 10. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Hmm. In verse 11, the three, the three friends of Job enter the scene, Eliphaz and Temanite and uh, Zophar. All right, and they they made an appointment together to come to console 
him and comfort him. And when they saw him from afar, they did not recognize him and so forth. Verse 13, they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. No one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. So now you can see the number seven, right? Number seven, we talked about this before, biblically speaking, is a term for covenant. Uh, it's a, The number seven it shares a common root with the word for oath or covenant. So whenever you see the number seven in the Bible, you should think about marriage, right? The marriage covenant, the two become one flesh. So they basically, they spend seven days in a silent retreat together until Job's friends and Job become one. And wow. this is now the story of the book of Job. For Job will voice part of Job's conscience. His friends will be part of that conscience, right? They're going to be the kind of the evil guy sitting on the shoulder, if you will. Shoulder, it's yeah. in Job's head, right? They're all in Job's head and they're talking to him and he's going, yeah. right? And what's he going yeah, about? It's basically this, that Job looks at his life and says, what did I do wrong? How did I deserve this? What did I do that God has cursed me with this curse? Because this is way out of proportion to what I ever did. Job does not ever claim that he's sinless. Job in the book does not ever claim that God is, well, unjust. But I want to be careful about that. Because he struggles with what appears to him to be an injustice, right? But he never gets to the point where he's just full-blown despair, right? And that's the beauty of Job. He remains faithful to the Lord while he's challenged. He's yelling at God. He's just frustrated at the situation. He's trying to understand the wisdom of God. He's trying to understand the justice of God. And he's trying to wrap his mind up. And he, ah! Right. And I mean, and that's, isn't that, isn't that like what, what we go through, right? So you've got, and then, and then I'm just going to very quickly go forward for all of you to chapter 32. Now in between, in between chapter, what was that? Chapter two, three, whatever we were at and chapter 32 is kind of a discussion that goes on here, right? It's the discussion between Job and his friends in which Job's going I didn't do anything like this to deserve this. And his friends are going, yeah, you did. You must have done something wrong. And, and then you got Job's wife going, you should just curse God. You, you, know, you worthless, whatever. But his friends said the wife was 100%. His friends were like, what did you do? You must have done something wrong to deserve this. And Job's denying it. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do anything to do this. That's for sure. Right. Something's wrong. Something's not right here. And he's struggling with this thing. And then chapter 32, verse one, chapter 32, verse one, are you there? Yep. I'm here. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Right. There he is. He's like, Hey, you show me what I did wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. Then Elihu, uh, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, became angry. He was angry at Job because he justified himself rather than God. 
And he was angry also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he became angry. And Elihu, the son of Berakel, the Buzite, answered. Okay, And what, what this guy says is basic, basically that reminds Job of an important point, and that is that our sufferings in this life are um, not always uh, sufferings which are God's judgment upon us in order to get us back for what we did, but oftentimes are used for our correction. Yeah, the Lord allows evils in our life to be there and is able to bring evil or blessing out of those evils. Um, in other words, he turns the fall, if you will, into the greatest of blessings, does he not? And so, oh, happy fall. I have a happy fall, right? In the same, in every one of our, in, in any situation we find ourselves, the Lord is able to bring good out of evil. And Use the situations that we find ourselves in for our spiritual growth and our correction, you know. And so this is what this young man says in chapter 32. In chapter 38, finally, the Lord steps into the scene. So we got to wait all, and it's only 42 chapters. You got to wait this whole time from verse chapter 2 when, when, when the Lord's speaking with Satan. He finally now speaks to Job and says, who do you think you are, Job? you think you understand my ways? You think you understand the wisdom of God and what I have planned for your life? You think you're going to judge me? No, 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 no. Okay, and that's where we have chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is that that darkens counsel by the word without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man, Job, and stop questioning me. I'm going to question you. Mm. right and that's that's where i mean this is like so if you know all those earlier stories you can actually skip to the punchline which is right here in chapter 38 and uh chapter 39 and right through 42 and you get the the meat of god's you know this this thing where job goes yeah 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 you're right lord and so you can look at chapter 40 um um chapter 40 and the lord said to job shall a fault finder contend with the almighty he who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord. And this is so beautiful. After all of this bluster and all, not bluster, but you know what I mean? All of this anger in the book, all this frustration in the book. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer thee? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Chapter 40. Job answered the Lord, I know that thou canst do all things, and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Yeah, of all those things God has planned for those who love him. Um, and then verse 5. I had heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see thee. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
verse 7. After the Lord has spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to these friends, basically, repent of what you've done. And, and now the end of the book comes, um, and Job is restored. His fortunes are restored. Verse 10, his fortunes are restored, and the book ends well. Okay, so that... I, I now you, that was a long way of giving you chapter seven. So to, and that's all. That's what you have to know. You can't. You're the poor people going to mass this Sunday that haven't taken the time. I'm really glad I had the time. I that's why I love doing SGR together. I hope you guys enjoy it too because for me, it makes a huge difference to go in and kind of remind myself of these things, and then I can jump into chapter seven very easily. This chapter seven jumps in right in the middle of the of the. Thing where his friends are like, you must have done something wrong. And Job's like, I didn't. I didn't. My life is just a disaster. I mean, and he's at the bottom of the pit. But you have to attach chapter seven to those last few chapters, right? Chapter 38 and following. So that's my homework for all of you now. Read chapter seven, those passages, but then go read chapter 38 to the very end. And then it can be applicable to your life. And I think I think actually applicable now also to our gospel account. Um, but uh, Annie, well, I don't actually, know if you have any other questions. I, no, I was going to say, actually, for those who go to mass unprepared and don't have the homework that you just gave us, um, the responsorial psalm, I think, gives us the answer right here with Psalm 147. I mean, we hear, so we end with, Job saying, remember that my life is like the wind. I shall not see happiness again. And then the responsorial psalm is, praise the Lord who heals the brokenhearted. Yeah, isn't that Job? Job's the brokenhearted. Yeah. He's not the despairer, but he has, gen he has a genuinely broken heart. He's, yeah. you know, I you almost think of like a, um, like a, a husband and a wife who are having real troubles and there's, they're just broken hearted. They know that their relationship is from more than this. And in that way, Job stands as the whole of the old Testament waiting Christ and our entire life in this kind of, in this fallen state that we live in. Yeah. Praise the Lord who heals the broken heart. Praise the Lord for he is good. Sing praise to our God for he is gracious it is fitting to praise him. The Lord rebuilds Jerusalem and dispersed the dispersed of Israel he gathers. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He tells the number of the stars. He calls each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty is his power. To his wisdom there is no limit. The Lord sustains the lowly and the wicked he cast to the ground. So I, I think there, you know, great is our Lord and mighty in power. To his wisdom there is no limit. And that's what Job discovers. He says, yeah, I, I, at the end of the day, God's purposes, his plans, his wisdom is beyond my wisdom, is beyond my understanding. And it is uh, it is for us to place our ourselves willingly in the hands of the Lord according to his ways, not according to ours. And only then will we discover and begin to see how many blessings he has prepared for us. And that's that's where the book of Job, I think, and the New Testament can come together so beautifully. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, Job's fortunes are, are restored in manifold, right? Like more than he had before. And that's exactly what Jesus tells us in the New Testament. So, okay, here we are. So Mark chapter one, 
verse 29 is yeah. where we're starting this weekend. Let me know when you're there. Okay. I uh, actually turned over to another book I was going to share with you. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. Mark chapter one. Yes. I'm glad yeah. you're giving us time. Annie, thank you very much for you Father Hezekiah, who's slow in turning his Bible. Chapter yeah. one, verse 29. 29. Go ahead. Here we go. On leaving the synagogue, Jesus entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law lay sick with a fever. They immediately told him about her. He approached, grasped her hand, and helped her up. Then the fever left her, and she waited on them. When it was evening after sunset, they brought to him all who were ill or possessed by demons. A whole town was gathered at the door. He cured many who were sick with various diseases, and he drove out many demons, not permitting them to speak because they knew him. Rising very early before dawn, he left and went off to a deserted place where he prayed. Simon and those who were with him pursued him and on finding him said, everyone is looking for you. He told them, let us go on to the nearby villages that I may preach there also. For this purpose have I come. So he went into their synagogues, preaching and driving out demons throughout the whole of Galilee. Okay, there we have it. All right, so we're there picking we up. It. We're picking up right where we left off, which I know is always your first question. Like, where is this fitting into the gospel readings, right? We're right here at the beginning of the gospel of Mark. We went over this last week. For those that weren't with us, I'm not going to uh, repeat everything I said there. For those that were with us, for their sake, because otherwise they'll uh, they'll never watch this uh, this these things again. But su it suffices to say that Jesus has now, at the beginning of his ministry, he's been baptized. He goes up to Capernaum, goes in the synagogue, drives out the demoniac, the demons from the demoniac, right? And then walks out of the synagogue, goes to Peter's house, and now take. So he's right Peter's here at the beginning. Like steps away, you said, right? Yeah. Well, okay. Well, so we'll pull it up, right? Might as well get our geography down, right? But wait, well, maybe before we get the, let's hold off on bringing up this, this, these pictures for a second, because I want to just talk about this for a moment. We, we left off last time talking about these, this, um, Jesus shuts down the demons, right? In the, in the, it says quiet, right? This, yeah. Jesus, we know who you are, right? Yeah. In, uh, in chapter one, uh, verse, uh, 23 and following 24, mm -hmm. uh, Jesus, we know who you are. And then he says, quiet enough. Right, he silences them so they can't speak anymore. Uh, the venerable bead says it was appropriate since death first entered into the world through the devil, devil's envy, that the healing medicine of salvation should first operate against him. The presence of the Savior is the torment of the devil. So here it is, right at the beginning, Jesus comes, is baptized in the Jordan by John, reclaiming creation, right? Reclaiming water that was over the face of the earth when he parted the waters and he and he created man. So he goes now and restores water to its proper nature, not as simply the place of death, but the place of resurrection, place of life, right? Whenever God touches, he sanctifies. And once he's done this now, he's in battle with the evil one, right? This cosmic battle is now taking place. So immediately he enters into this fight with the devils. In the other gospels, he goes in the 40 years, 40 years, 40 days in the wilderness. And in Mark's gospel, 
He does that in verse 12 and then comes to the synagogue and gets close up and starts in a fist fight with them, basically, right? And so this, this whole story continues now and St. Athanasius, you know, what is it? The end of this gospel today, he's again driving out demons, right? Yeah. And Lots not of permitting demons in the first chapter of Mark. Yeah, exactly. And not, a, not even a, uh, again, not allowing them to speak. Notice yeah. that repetition, right? Yeah. Verse 34. And he healed many who were sick and various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him, right? So St. Athanasius says he put a bridle in the mouths of the demons that cried after him from the tombs. For although what they said was true, and they did not lie when they said, you are the Son of God and the Holy One of God, yet he did not wish that the truth should proceed from an unclean mouth, and especially from such as those who under pretense of truth might mingle with it their own malicious devices. So you got to you know, thank God for the fathers of the church in these in these moments. But but you asked about the geography. So so we've done a little bit now of um, of yeah the, the what Jesus is doing, why he's doing it, right? Yeah. And uh, so he's at this kind of cosmic level, the beginning of his of his ministry. But I always find the geography to be super fascinating. We did it last yeah. week, but for those who aren't with us, I will do it again because I just love it so much. Um, and that is to understand where they're at. You got to get your bearings down. So. I'm going to do something different here today, and that is we always look at pictures and stuff like that. But you know what? We've got modern technology, and so I'm going to share my screen with all of you. I've pulled up here Google Earth, and there I am living in Sacramento, California, and I'm clicking on Capernaum, and woo, there we are, okay? Now, before I close this down, there is the remnants of the synagogue that are left at Capernaum. And so when you go to visit there, you can go and enter in. And this is where Jesus was teaching. This is a, a synagogue. I can't remember. This is like second, third century, something like that. Second century, if I remember right. But the foundation stones of this synagogue are, this, are the same that Jesus walked on. So this is basically the pattern of where Jesus was in chapter one of Mark. Yeah, there's a black basalt stone. See that black? That's the that's the stone that would have been there that they would have built the synagogue out of in Jesus' time, and the foundation stones are still there. Okay, I'm gonna close that down so we can focus on what I want to focus on, and that is Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee. And uh, this is cool. This is really kind of a neat thing here for us to look at. There, if you go visit the the place today, you see the remnants of the city, and I like this because in Chapter one in our biblical text that we have, verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought him all who were sick or possessed of demons, and the whole city was gathered together out about the door. Okay, now the whole city. Well, what is the whole city? It's like this area. Okay, there's there's some there's some uh you know remnants of walls and things, but the, the primary area is right here. And there is the remnants of the synagogue okay. that Jesus entered. And then he walks out of the synagogue and walks down the street to Peter's house. That distance is like from here to my down the hallway. Okay. It's not that far. It's like, wow. I don't know what it is. A hundred yards, 
150 yards, something like that. It's right there, right there. Not even that, probably. And this monstrosity, no, I'm kidding. This is the church that was built here. It looks like a spaceship. It's like a beetle. Yeah, it's actually pretty cool because what they did was they took what is believed to be Peter's house. It's a little little octagon, remnants of an octagon church that was built over the spot. And an octagon outside the octagon is they expanded the little chapel into a, a bigger church and things like that. And now they've built this octagon thing that sits up off the ground with a glass floor so that you can see down into Peter's house. Well, why is that cool? Well, we're going to find out here a little bit later in this chapter. I won't I won't tell you much more. But nevertheless, and then he's going to go down to the sea, right? But here in this story, he's in Peter's house. He's right here, very close. And the whole city gathered about. Well, Annie, I don't know about you, but look, at there's like one house, two houses, three houses, four houses, five houses, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I don't know. I mean, they're little tiny places, right? Little tiny shacks. Yeah. So how many people live in Capernaum? Time of Christ? I don't know. hundred? Maybe? Sure. Well, it sounds like a lot of them had some demons and certainly yeah. they were all sick. My goodness. There they, there, there they are. And they come to Jesus asking to be healed. So this is super cool. And and then in, in this passage, we're, we're verses what? 30, 32, no, thir- 29, 29 through, through 39. Through 39. So there's a little bit more geography we have to do here. So I'm going to pull up Google Earth again, because look at what it says here. Um, verse 35. In the morning, a great while before day, he rose and went out to a lonely place. There he prayed. Now, where is this lonely place? Well, actually, this location is known by tradition to the local Christians, not too far away. And I'm just going to give you a little bit of a bigger sense of the Sea of Galilee here. And let's let's go ahead and get our our bearings all together. Okay, there's the Dead Sea. Much smaller now. I bet you those are salt uh, farms. Yeah, look at that. That's kind of cool. cool. And then Jerusalem is right here. This is where Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. The Jordan River flows all the way down here to the Dead Sea. Why is the Dead Sea dead? Because it has no outlet, right? That's just a farm thing. But it just basically ends. So it's not a life-giving sea, right? The Sea of uh, Sea of Galilee is life-giving. It receives life from the Jordan River, and it gives life in the Jordan River. But the Dead Sea is dead because it's not a giver of life. As a, it just takes. It just takes, which is a good example for the moral life. See where Jericho is in comparison to where Jesus was about. It's right there. And that's where the temptation of the desert took place. You can see that monastery today up on the cliffs. I will share it with you right now. I'll stop sharing my screen. Should have done this before when we were talking about the temptation in the desert. Um, but uh well, we will because Lent's coming up. So yeah. Well, here we we'll are. Have that time. Yeah. Sharing again my screen here with all these great pictures. There you can see this monastery built into the cliff. Yeah. Cool. That you can see from Jericho. It's up there on the mountain cliffs. This is where it was believed that Jesus entered in the 40 days in the desert and was tempted by the devil. Um, and all the kingdoms of the earth, as you can see. I'll go wow. back now. It's called the Mount of Temptation Monastery. Yes. I could not imagine living in a monastery named after temptation. <laughs> well, there it is, <laughs> so man. Incredible. Battling with the devil. I'm going back yeah. to 
Google Earth now to the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. And there you have it. Here is Capernaum. Bethsaida is right up in this area right here. Okay. Magdala is right down in, uh, I'm going to have to say, right about there. Someone just guessing right in that area right there. This is where Jesus loved to walk and teach. The Mount of Beatitudes is right there. Okay, right in here, somewhere right in that area. Why am I not seeing the church? There it is, Mount of Beatitudes. Mount of Beatitudes, right? This is the cove where Jesus went out into the boat to teach them. We'll have time to look at this in the coming weeks as we're going through these early. We'll go back to this thing a lot so you can really get your bearings down. And there you have it, Annie. That's where this causal is taking place. That's so cool. I mean, it's yeah. really neat to to be able to to see things like that. So so Jesus is here. He heals Peter's mother-in-law and everyone's looking for him. And then it says, let us go on to the nearby. He says, let us go on to the nearby villages that I may preach there also for this purpose. Have I come? I find oh. that to be a really striking statement from Jesus, but can you just enlighten us a little bit further yeah, as to this sure. purpose i'm yeah. going to but i give you one last geography thing i totally forgot about which is where i was going was that lonely place that the locals know oh, about right, here right, yeah. right here see this ein eov waterfall yeah okay is the calling of the apostles took place right here mm -hmm. um and if you come out of here and right up here on the hill there is you come up here, right here, there's a cave. And that cave, Jesus loved to go to to pray. It was a lonely place away from anybody else. And whether this is the lonely place is spoken of or not in this particular passage, it's a very beautiful spot. And I believe this is indeed the spot where Jesus was, was going to get away from everybody. And you can really has a beautiful vantage point over the whole Sea of Galilee. It's almost like a throne over the sea. Wow. Uh, he goes back to this place multiple times in the gospel. I have a chance to go back and look at this a little more, a little closer. Um, but, uh, but you, 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 I don't know what you asked Annie, but I know what I wanted to say. Sure. Well, I mean, I was just asking about this for this purpose. Have I come? What he mm -hmm. said right before. Right. So yeah. now we've encountered not only man filled with demons, right? The demoniac, the, the devil having dominion over man, right? Hello, Job. Right. But also man sick. Hello, Job. Yeah. And the healing, the one who comes is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this moment, he becomes their savior, right? He saves the man who's filled with demons and he saves Peter's mother-in-law who is in the throes of death. And, um, and in that moment, God turns our illness our turns the our fallen world on its head he makes it an opportunity for blessing and this is what job's young friend not his older three friends of this fourth guy got and this is what i think the church is calling us to here on this sunday of preparation that no matter the struggles and the difficulties that we face in our life, whether they be physical illnesses, whether they be spiritual illnesses, 
whatever the case may be, the Lord is more powerful than these difficulties, than these evils. And in this way, we can begin to rejoice in our sufferings. For if we were not in that situation, Jesus couldn't come to save us from that situation, right? Yeah. And isn't that, I always find that um, when I'm hearing confessions, I always think about that, that God gets to become for this person, their savior because of their sin. Wow. And if it hadn't been for their sins, then he wouldn't be able to relate to them in this way. And they wouldn't be able to discover this beautiful mystery of God's love for them. So there's this aspect of the Lord that's revealed in our sins. And I'm not, you know, please don't go too far with this, that somehow God is the author of evil and all this stuff. It's not my point, but you understand, he's more powerful than all of this. Whenever there's a difficulty in our life, look out, because God's more powerful than that. He's going to bring a blessing, which is going to be more powerful than that. And here we have in Peter's mother-in-law, as we had in Job, as we have in the demoniac mankind, oppressed by the devil, in ruins, in sickness, in the darkness of Peter's house, alone. And now Jesus comes and reaches out his hand and begins to bring healing. It was for this purpose that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary that he might take us who are bound by sin, who, who are in, in the throes of death, right? Who are in the tomb and give us the possibility of resurrection, the newness of life. And now the whole gospel story kind of kind of comes together there, right? Right here in these passages. Yeah. And I mean, just to transition to our epistle, as you're talking about that, like when we receive those graces from the Lord, we have to share it, right? We have to, like, as St. Paul says in here, like, woe to me if I do not preach it. I mean, we who have experienced that in our own lives, I know I have, I'm sure you have, Father. Um, woe to us if we don't share that experience with others so that mm. they can look for that same experience this in is, their own lives. This is a great, this is a great message, Annie. And actually, I was looking over here at St. Jerome has a beautiful beautiful insight. Um, I'm going to just read you the whole quote. It's really one sentence in here that is, I think is, is great. I'm going to read you the whole quote. Can you imagine Jesus standing before your bed and you continue sleeping? It is absurd that you would remain in bed in his presence. Where is Jesus? He is already here offering himself to us. In the middle, he says, among you, he stands, whom you do not recognize. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Faith beholds Jesus among us. If we are unable to seize his hand, let us prostrate ourselves at his feet. If we are unable to reach his head, let us wash his feet with our tears. Our repentance, and this is the point, this is the point, so beautiful. Our repentance is the perfume of the Savior. See how costly is the compassion of the Savior. Our sins give off a terrible odor. They are rottenness. Nevertheless, if we repent of our sins, they will be transformed into perfume by the Lord. Therefore, let us ask the Lord to grasp our hand. And at once, he says, the fever left her. Immediately, as, as her hand is grasped, the fever flees. And in that moment, right, that perfume now explodes. 
and our and and uh, and and this is a great a great message for all of us here. In between, as we're reading the gospel, the calling of the apostles. Right? This is like they're just brand new following the Lord. In between Christmas and and now we're heading into Lent and ultimately the Passion and Resurrection and our own call to discipleship and to become apostles for the Lord to allow what has happened to us in our fallen state to become an opportunity to not be what the devil wants it to be, but what the Lord wants it to be. How many times I can look back at my own life in my own lane there, my fever, right? The fever of my passions Mm -hmm. and how the Lord has worked miracles in my life. And these are given to me as a gift. Yeah. Even my sins, I'm going to go that far. Yeah. Even my sins have now been transformed by Christ so that they can be to my benefit. Not only is a warning to me, like to Job, right, uh, of correction, but also an opportunity for spiritual growth that they may become like perfume in my life that I can reach out to others who I, maybe I wouldn't have understood before going through the similar struggles and reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ because I've gone through it. Now, the Lord has transformed my sin, right, my evils, into the greatest of blessings. He is able to do this with every aspect of our life. Only we allow him to come and enter in. God is so good. He's so good. 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse 16? Yep. Through 19, again, we're not fans of verse 20 and 21. Okay, we're going to read the whole thing. Okay, First yeah. Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16 through 23, we're going to read. Yep, okay, here we go. Well, hold on, I got to turn there. Okay. First Corinthians chapter 9, here we go, verse 16. 16. All right, Paul writes, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am entrusted with a commission. What then is my reward? Just this, that in my preaching, I may make the gospel free of charge, not making full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being without law toward God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Let's finish with a quotation from St. Ambrose, who says, He who did not think it robbery to be equal with God took the nature of a slave. He became all things to all men to bring salvation to all. Paul, an imitator of him, lived as if outside the law while remaining accountable to the law. He spent his life for the advantage of those he wished to win. He willingly became weak for the weak in order to strengthen them. He ran the race to overtake them. I I said I'm going to finish with that, but I cannot. 
I have to finish um, with a quotation from St. Paul um, in his letter to, um, I'm going to get it here because I always find it by the grace of God. It's going to be the Colossians, um, Colossians chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 24. Chapter 1, verse 24. And I think we go all the way back to where we began with Job, who um, who offered sacrifices for his sons. Listen to what St. Paul says. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. This is chapter 1, verse 24. Did I say that, Annie? Yeah. Chapter 1, verse 24. Um for the sake of, of his body, which is the church, right? So, so St. Paul says how his his own sufferings can benefit others and difficulties of his life, as you were just saying, Annie, with that sense of that perfume, as, as St. Ambrose was saying. So as we are preparing for Lent, let us not only take account of our own life and our own sins, but also the weaknesses of those around us to realize that we are one in the body of Christ. And then as we enter into the fast of Lent, we should do so not only for our own salvation, but for the salvation of all those around us. Yeah, it may be, it may be that, you know, you are a very faithful Catholic. You may be going to daily mass and receiving Holy Communion. You may be uh, very faithful in all ways of very li living a very saintly life, very holy life. Um, and and maybe the, 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 uh, the seriousness of Lent might seem out of, out of, scale. But remember Job and remember what St. Paul says about the importance of our own sufferings. That the, by the wisdom of God, we might become the love of God for those around us, having been baptized into that reality, into that love, so that what might come flowing out of us is what is flowing out of the Lord himself. And then we can truly say, say with St. Paul, no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and to ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.